Well, good morning. It is good to be with you, and it's good for us to be together and appreciate our visitors. We're so glad that you are with us, and we invite you to come back every opportunity you have and worship God with us and study his word. God's grace is just amazing. There is really no measure to the magnitude and the awesomeness of the grace of God. If you really think about it, all sinners, including us, all sinners are undeserving and unworthy of God's grace. Grace is not earned. You and I don't deserve grace. But all men, like us as well, all of us desperately need God's grace. If you think about it, the guilty deserve to pay the penalty of their crimes, do they not? And as sinners, we are guilty of transgressing God's character, of transgressing God's will. And so therefore, as guilty individuals, we ought to pay the penalty of our sinful actions. But our creator and judge, God, offers us, offers the guilty an immensely gracious gift. It is a gift which involves atonement and propitiation. It is a gift that involves forgiveness, mercy. It is also a gift that involves righteousness and hope. This abundant grace of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ, though, does not eliminate, it does not eliminate individual responsibility. Nor does it eliminate individual accountability to God, to our Creator, to our Redeemer, to our Judge. But the Lord's way, the way the Lord covers a multitude of sins and saves the soul from condemnation. The way the Lord covers a multitude of sins and saves the soul from condemnation. That grace, though, that immense, immeasurable, amazing grace that has come down from above does not ever approve, does not ever condone, does not ever ignore sin or falsehood or error or disobedience. This morning I want to study and talk a little bit about the idea of how grace and truth harmoniously work together. Working together to call us and to cleanse us and to transform us believing, obedient sinners unto righteousness and holiness. But think about that. These two concepts are not separate concepts. They are concepts that are intricately woven together and they must work together because of the very character of God. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we are told that God has spoken in these last days to us in his Son. And that Son is Jesus Christ. And that Son is also described to us as the fullness of grace and truth. True grace and absolute truth originate with God. It originates with God. It comes from God. It is revealed to us by God. Mankind, you and I, are not the source. We are not the source. We are not the originator of grace and truth. That's God. And it is Jesus Christ who was the embodiment of He was the embodiment of perfect grace and perfect truth while on earth. And that's what the Gospel of John chapter 1 introduces us when it talks about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? And what do we see? We saw glory. We saw the glory of God in Him. And that glory of God was the fullness of grace and truth. That is, the words and the actions, the conduct of Jesus Christ reflected his Father. He is the representation, the exact representation of the radiance of his Father. And so when they saw Jesus in the flesh, they were seeing God in the flesh who possessed the fullness of grace and truth. And so Jesus reflected the Father's grace and reflected the Father's truth as well. Never contradicting himself, never condoning sin, while all the while stopping to love the sinner. God's grace, God's grace always works within and upholds his truth. And God's truth always fulfills and extends grace in God's way. According to God's will, it's a perfect balance. Now, you and I may not display perfectness in our demonstration of grace and our living by truth, but God is. God's grace always worked in harmony with truth. And God's truth always worked in harmony with grace. Because God's grace and God's truth are not defined by us. We don't don't define what God's grace is. God defines that. And we don't get to define what is God's truth. No, God has defined what his grace and his truth are. And neither does God's grace and God's truth fit the mold that so often the world wants to put it inside. No perfect grace and perfect truth that comes from God works harmoniously as we see in the scriptures. And Jesus was the embodiment of this. Jesus taught grace. And Jesus taught truth. He he has revealed and preserved a message for us 
a message that come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that message is a message of grace and truth. The apostles preached grace and truth because they preached Christ. They preached Christ's good news, Christ's gospel. For example, in, there in Acts 14, talking about the journeys of Paul and how they were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who is testifying to the word of grace. And so when they preach Jesus, they preach grace. But Paul later writes in Colossians 1 concerning the hope of heaven and he talked about how you heard from me the word of truth in the gospel. It's both. Grace... Without the word of truth is not God's grace. Grace without the word of truth is not God's grace. And truth without the word of grace is not God's truth. No, God's grace and God's truth perfectly work together. And together... Grace and truth save. Together, grace and truth from God save. And no other way does. We cannot be saved solely by truth. And we will not be saved solely by grace. Jesus is the embodiment of his Father. And what did he reveal? The fullness and the completeness and the perfectness of grace and truth. In so doing, he came to save the lost. God's undeserved or unearned gifts and blessings that are found in Christ Jesus, though, are not without God-ordained expectations. God's grace, these unearned gifts and blessings in Christ, are not without God-ordained commandments. Take, for example, faith. The necessity of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we are told, Without faith, without faith, it is impossible to, to please God. But what, what kind of faith is defined in verse 6? It's a faith that acts harmoniously with God. For example, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For we must believe that he is and, what? That he will reward those who seek him. Every person, what that illustrates here is every individual, every living soul is responsible and accountable for whether or not he pleases God. Now I can't please God without faith. But it has to be a faith that not only believes that God is real, but also the kind of faith that seeks God diligently. That's my choice. But what that illustrates is that every soul is accountable to his creator. Every soul is liable for his actions and his choices and his decisions. 
John 8, 24 talks about how when well, Jesus says, Un- unless you believe that I am he, you will what? You will die in your sins. Do you need to make a choice? Yes, their choice needs to be made. And everyone's going to be judged by that choice. If they have the faith that pleases God. If they have the faith that submits to God. Jesus is the embodiment or was the embodiment of grace and truth on earth while he walked in the flesh. And while he was here, what did he do? He spoke the absolute truth. Everything he said was the truth. And that truth did what? That truth revealed the path of grace that must be taken to be saved. God offers us a path of grace according to truth. If I choose not to take his path, that's the path that saves me. But I choose a different path from the one that God has offered all mankind, all sinners. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be saved. What do we deserve? We, if we are of an accountable age, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's the wages of sin? Death. That's what we deserve. We don't think that. But that's the truth. And God... With that truth offers us grace. And Jesus revealed the truth that reveals the grace that saves us. You think about it. Truth from God. Truth from God is divine grace. Truth from God is divine grace. Did our creator have to reveal himself through his words? Or could he have just left us to our own ruin, to our own self-destruction? The very fact that God has revealed truth, the absolute truth about who he is, about a son, and about what we must do to be saved, that truth in itself is A gracious gift from God. But in Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, we we turn over there. I'm going to read a few verses where it talks about the grace of God that has appeared. This gracious gift of salvation that requires not only faith, but also it requires repentance. It requires a changed life. So starting there in the second chapter of Titus, in verse 11, verse 11, the Apostle Paul, writing to the evangelist Titus, says, For the grace of God has appeared. In a sense, the grace of God has arrived. It is here. It is available. It is revealed. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Grace offers the salvation to everybody. And so for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us or teaching us to deny ungodliness and worthy desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Grace, in the simplest form, is a gift. It's a gift that the recipient has no right, no authority to make a demand about. It's a gift. But this gift that comes from God also teaches us that it comes with some divine expectations. God has the right and God has the authority to say, I'm going to give this gift that you don't deserve to get. Because what you really deserve is death. That's what you deserve. But I'm not going to offer you this gift, but there are some expectations. There is some responsibility that's going to come with this gift. And one of those is this big, huge concept of repentance. It's a big concept. And it's a concept that that is to affect our entire life as we go through the lifelong journey of being spiritually and morally transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so here in Titus 2, he says, grace has arrived, grace has appeared, and grace is teaching us about repentance, the requirement of repentance. Like truth, grace teaches us something. Truth is not the only revelation that instructs. Paul says grace instructs us too. And grace teaches us what is required by God to be saved in this context. And so you have the idea to deny oneself from all unacceptable behavior and desires. That's what this idea of when he says deny, denying ungodliness and worldly desires. And so this choice to deny ourselves from all of these all of this unacceptable behavior... In order to live, wow, well, to live in a God-acceptable manner. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is all about leaving behind the old man and living the new life in Christ Jesus. That journey doesn't reach its maturity overnight. Just like growing up, there's a process to it. But, do I need to grow up? Yes. Do I have to repent? Yes. Grace offers me the opportunity to make change in my life through the power of Christ and the power of the gospel, but I have to make the decision to make those changes in harmony with truth. The sorrow that moves one to decide to turn away from sin and then to live right before God, to live right in Jesus Christ, that is expected by God of every person. That's God's expectation. See, grace and truth must work together perfectly, and it does. The way the Lord does save, but it's going to be, it's going to be with gr- truth and grace working together together. 
And so here he, Paul says, okay, great grace it has appeared, is teaching us, you need to repent, you need to make these cha- leave this, these things behind you, stop doing these things, start doing these other things. Because, why? Because Jesus has paid the price to free you from your self-enslavement of sin. Jesus paid that price. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to die for God to forgive. And God said, I'll send my son. We're all on death row. We're all of us are on death row. But God says, Jesus will die in your place. That's a gift. But it's a gift that comes with accountability. It is a gift that comes with responsibility. It's a gift that comes with the call of repentance. And failure to do so, failure to repent as the truth and the grace teaches us in the gospel of Christ, has eternal consequences. Jesus himself said, unless you repent, unless you repent of whatever sin is in your life, he says, you will perish. You will But through repentance, God says, I will give you a gift based on truth. Grace and truth together teach us. They actually teach us what is acceptable to God. And it teaches us what is unacceptable to God. It teaches us what is wrong as well as it teaches us what is right. As the inspired writer James says... Put, as, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. There's that denying ungodliness worthy desire. It's the same point. Put, put this away and in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And prove yourselves doers of the word. Receiving the word implies obedience. We are to receive and now live and walk a new and different life from our past and from the world in which we live in. A Christian cannot habitually continue in sin and in error and remain in fellowship with God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In 1 John, the apostle John writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, the idea is ongoing walk. Do we stumble from time to time even as Christians? Yes. And we have an advocate at hand and we better use him and call on his name in humility and repentance every time we sin. But if we're walking in darkness... If, we're, if we're, we are habitually continuing in darkness and we make this claim, well, you know, I'm, you know, I have fellowship with Christ and yet walk in darkness. He says, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, we're walking. It is a continual effort. It's an ongoing process. We, we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
You know, we cannot just continually in, uh, stay in the sin without repentance and expect God to be pleased with us. And yet we live in a world today, sometimes that's exactly what the religious world wants to say. Once you call upon the name of the Lord, you know, you know, no matter what you do, you know, you're going to be saved no matter what. We must walk in the light as he is in the light. We must walk in the light as revealed by the one who is light. If you go back to Titus chapter 2, you look there in verse, you know, verse 15 in what we read earlier. I want you to just note how Titus is told here in this context. He says, I want you, Titus, I want you to exhort and reprove with authority these things. I want you to exhort and reprove these things with authority. What authority? Well, the authority of what the Spirit just revealed. Teach the truth about grace. Teach the truth about truth. Exhort and reprove with authority. Why? Because it is the inspired word of God. That's why. This is not the, word, the mere words of men. This is the word of God himself. Breathing out through the spirit. The power that it has to save the soul. This good news of God's grace as we've already suggested, it involves the idea of faith, repentance, but also it involves the kingdom. Back in Acts 20, it's the context when Paul is giving his kind of final exhortation to the elders from Ephesus. He calls them and they, they meet him in a different town and he, it's before he goes to Jerusalem and ends up being imprisoned. And then having to travel all the way to Rome. And so he meets with these elders to give them an exhortation and a farewell. I want just to read a portion of that you know, message that Paul gives to these brothers, these shepherds of that church. When, beginning up in verse 20, he says, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Now listen, of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. He says, when I preached to you, you know, and I did so publicly and privately, and I did it to everybody, the same message. He didn't pre say something different to Jews as, and from what he told the Greeks. No, he had preached the same message. And he says, and I preached that, that you know, you know, there must be repentance toward God and there must be faith in Jesus Christ. But now, let's read a little further. And I behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He said, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I have a good idea. It's not going to go as well as I would like it to go. But then picking up now in verse 24, when he says, But I do not consider my life at any count as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And so when he, when, when he taught what was profitable, 
He was also teaching the gospel of the grace of God. And so when he was testifying repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, he was teaching the gospel of Christ or the grace of God. And in verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So when you preach the good news of God's grace, some basic concepts involved in that is, one, there's faith. The essential requirement of faith to salvation. But that's not all. There also must be repentance. And that repentance involves a change in your life where you go from one who once disobeyed God to obeying whatever Jesus commands. But thirdly, he says, it also involves the understanding and the relationship that you have with the kingdom. Because the gospel of God's grace does not teach that God is going to save every single soul that has ever lived on earth, no matter how they live. That's universalism. That is not the message of truth. And that is not the message of grace, either. Neither does the gospel of grace teach that all believers are at liberty to do anything they want to do in the name of religion. And God's going to be okay with that. It doesn't teach that either. The world will say that. But that's not what what you read. You read your Bibles. You see what God says. But I think it's also important to understand the idea that Jesus is the sovereign monarch of the kingdom. Chew on that for a second or two. Jesus is the sovereign monarch monarch of his kingdom. What does that mean? Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. Jesus sets the rules. It's his kingdom. And he's the king. Even in the ministry, as you look there in Mark chapter 1, early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it talked about how he went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He didn't just preach salvation, you know, by grace alone. No, he says, now, the gospel of the kingdom involves a salvation by grace and truth. But he says, he went everywhere preaching the kingdom. Why is that? Well, because he came to be king. That's why. Luke 1, there in verses 32 and 33, is the occasion when Gabriel is talking to Mary. And one of the pivotal points of who this son, that she's going to conceive without having physical relations, who he's going to be, is the fact that he is going to be a king. He's going to be God's anointed one. And that's why at the end of his life, so you have this passage of Luke before he's born, you got one near the end of his life where he's before Pilate, and he says, my kingdom's not of the world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting. And he said, well, are you a king? He says, for this purpose I came. Everything that Jesus taught and has taught and has commanded relates to the fact that he has a kingdom And he is the king of that kingdom. And so therefore, you think of this idea, who possesses the power to decree the kingdom's laws and statutes? Who's the one who says, these are the laws of my kingdom? These are the statutes and the priests of my kingdom? Who decides that? The king does. The monarch. 
The one who's sovereign, king above all kings. Who's the one who possesses the authority to demand obedience and then to execute judgment and justice accordingly? Who has the right to do that? The monarch does. The king. Who's that? King Jesus. That's who. I don't have that. And you don't have that. But Jesus does. Because when you preach the gospel of of God's grace, you preach, yes, faith, and you preach repentance, but also you preach the kingdom and what that means on a practical basis of submitting completely to the king's will. Who decides how divine grace will be administered in that kingdom? It is a kingdom of truth, and it is a kingdom of grace, but who decides how that grace is given to you? The king does. It's his grace. It's his. It's not our grace. It's his grace. Entrance into that kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is through redemption and forgiveness. You see that in Colossians 1.13, where it talks about you've been translated or transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God, dear son, by redemption that you may receive forgiveness. But what has the king commanded, what has the king decreed you must do to enter his kingdom? What you must do to receive his forgiveness, his gift of grace of forgiveness. What has he told us? Well, a couple passages that illustrate that. Matthew 28, the great commission of Jesus Christ. He says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all things that I commanded you. That's how we enter the kingdom. And that's exactly what the apostles preached in Acts 2.38. When they're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And you have the gospel being proclaimed in entirety by the apostles for the first time since the ascension of Christ. And when people said, what must we do? Because they were convicted by the truth that they crucified the very son of God. What must we do? And they said, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Entrance into the kingdom is the redemption. That's Jesus' part. And forgiveness, that's where you have to act and I have to act. If I want that forgiveness that comes through his blood, his death, then I've got to do what the king says. In the way he says it. Kingdom is also all about righteousness. That's that's what the kingdom's all about. It's not about having having a kingdom on earth where the king puts food on my table, he, he, he keeps a roof over my head, and I just get to enjoy the prosperity in the land. That's not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom is about righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, what are we told to do? What are we told to seek first? The kingdom. Whose kingdom is he talking about? Christ's kingdom. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. The two go hand in hand. Or Romans 14, 17, where he says the, you know, the kingdom is not you know, uh, eating and drinking, but is righteousness, peace, and joy. But who decides? Who decides what is right in the kingdom? 
Who decides what is right for the kingdom? Who decides what is the measure of righteousness of that kingdom? It's Jesus Christ. Because he is the sovereign monarch in the universe. And we submit to him. Grace and truth at work. It is a kingdom that we are blessed to be part of because somebody else paid the ultimate price. And we receive a gift of forgiveness. But that grace says there is some individual responsibility, there are some individual obligations, there is some individual accountability that comes with receiving that gift because you serve a holy God. One more point in the lesson we yours. Grace and truth call for godly discipline. And that grace and truth calls for godly discipline even when Christians stray from truth and when Christians fall from grace. God's grace does not overlook our sins. God is long-suffering and God is forbearing and patient. And God desires all men to come to repentance. But the passing of time does not mean that God overlooks sin. Nor does the passing of time mean that now suddenly God has fellowship with sin. That suddenly God now is going to fellowship with things that are are of the darkness. When he is a God of light. In Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 9 through 11 excuse me. It talks about the chastening of our Lord, of our God and Redeemer. And it begins by introducing the idea in verse 6 where it says, Those that God loves, he chastens. Or those that he loves, he disciplines. But I want to pick up the reading here and he uses us as parents in the training and the disciplining that we try to implement to the best of our ability and the best of our wisdom to bring up our children in the admonition of the Lord. Use that as an illustration. You discipline your children because you love them. Yeah, you discipline because you care about them. And you pick up in verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much, more, much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, he disciplines us for our good. So that we may share, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, trained by God's discipline, God's chastening, yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's disciplining of us through the various means that he uses is grace and truth at work. When God disciplines us, It's grace and truth working together 
to transform us and to save us eternally. Discipline is part of the kingdom. It's part of submitting to the king's authority because it pertains to our salvation and it is action that is taken to save a soul. And so there's a couple passages I want to very quickly touch on and the lesson will be yours. One is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we've been studying, you know, the, that epistle for, you know, for this quarter. It's been a good study, a good reminder, a good challenge, and a good time of reflection for all of us. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you recall there is a brother in that congregation who is practicing sin. He is in sin. He is walking in darkness. And the church is challenged, the church is commanded to take action appropriately with God's grace and truth. I want to pick up there at the end of the chapter where you have this kind of this specific idea of this unrepentant brother needs to be disciplined by the church, by his spiritual family. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The sin that this man was committing was wickedness. And the other sins that, he, that are listed there in verse 11 are wickedness. We need, we, need to, we need to remind ourselves, sin is wickedness. Sin is transgression. And so when you have a brother in Christ committing wickedness, I mean, engaged in walking in this path... Not showing humility or penitence, but going down the path away from the, from, the, from the Lord, away from truth, away from grace. The Lord says, discipline him to save his soul. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. In this, in this particular passage, we have Paul addressing some th- concerns there at that congregation. And there are brethren there who are not keeping to Christ's traditions. Not talking about man's traditions. You're talking about the traditions, those things that have been passed on down through the preaching and the writing of inspired men of God, the apostles and prophets of Christ. And there are in that congregation, there are some things being done or not done that are not according to Christ's traditions. And those individuals, those brothers in Christ, those Christians who were not obeying Christ's traditions were told to be what? To be disciplined, to be admonished. In verse 14 and 15, it says, If anyone does not obey our construction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When there are Christians who have strayed from the truth and they have fallen from grace, 
Grace and truth calls for discipline. It calls for efforts being made to point out the sin in their life and to challenge them to repent unless they perish. Worldly grace. Worldly grace hinders the salvation of souls. Grace defined and explained and used in the way that the world wants to use it to basically cover up everything and not require much of anything. That worldly grace hinders the salvation of souls. That worldly grace hurts and harms the salvation of souls. But God's grace, God's grace is a totally different matter. It's perfect. And it's exactly what we need. And it offers us a priceless gift. A gift that we could never earn, no matter how good we could be. We could never earn the gift. Because of what Jesus did. But that grace instructs us. That grace teaches us. Concerning the truth that sinners must do something to be saved by God's grace through faith. God's plan is a plan of grace. It's a plan of salvation. And it requires of us all who have never called upon the name of the Lord in obedience to that gospel, that gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. He calls us all to believe with all our heart that Jesus is the Christ. Not only must we believe that God is, that God exists, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. That Jesus that died on Calvary's cross. And that faith must then act According to God's grace and truth, by repenting of sin, beginning the process of turning away from the sins in our lives and the sins of this world, confess that faith in Jesus as God's Son unashamedly with your mouth before others and then be immersed to be buried in the watery grave of baptism so that Christ can raise us up as His children, as His disciples, as citizens of a kingdom that is unshakable. If you've not done that, we want to encourage you to do that because that's God's grace and that's God's truth. Whatever your spiritual need may be this morning, we invite you, we encourage you, please come forward, make your wishes known while we stand and sing that song that's been selected.